This Janet Mefford Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Bible League International. Please help us send 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians in Asia. $5 sends one Bible, $35 sends seven. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 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 or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. Norman, Oklahoma is emerging as a hotspot when it comes to the battle to save America. A group called Unite Norman has filed to recall its progressive mayor, Bria Clark, along with four city council members, one of whom has now resigned. What are some of the reasons for this? Well, the council considered making Norman a sanctuary city. It has now defunded the police, and the mayor has said an ordinance is going to be introduced to the council that would lower the voting age to 16. Now, members Members of Unite Norman say they believe the current city council, through their words and actions, have abused their positions by disrespecting the police department, discouraging job creation, and abusing the public trust, adding, we will not stand by idly and allow our elected officials to legislate their own radical agendas. Interestingly enough, Unite Norman also has become the launching point for a nationwide movement led by freedom-loving conservatives. So we're going to find out more about what is going on now from Bob Lynn, who is president of the Oklahoma a conservative political action committee, which educates voters and funds the political campaigns of Christian conservatives. Bob, so great to have you here. How are you? Doing well and just a real privilege to be on with you today. Well, it's my privilege to have you here because I have heard a lot of talk about what's been going on in Norman. Now, I know a lot of listeners outside Oklahoma probably think of your state as this stronghold of conservatism and are a little surprised by this story. But tell people what's been going on. What kicked all of this off? The concerns that you all have about what's going on legislatively with the mayor and the city council members? Well, this all really began with Bernie Sanders uh, when he was elected mayor of Burlington, Vermont. That began his career. It was somewhat late in his life. He was around 40. But his presidential campaign, which uh, I would consider highly successful, gave him a national platform and funding to begin our revolution, funded by George Soros. And they have been uh, involved in supporting mayor races and city council races all over the country. And that includes Norman, Oklahoma. And two of our sitting council members uh, were Bernie Sanders' uh, candidates. As a matter of fact, one of our council members uh, was his uh, state campaign manager here in Oklahoma. Wow. So we, we have Bernie Sanders' socialism slash communism involved in taking over cities all over America and, of course, right here in Norman. Incredible. So so talk a little bit about what the council has done, what the mayor has done that has caused so much concern. Defunding the police, I know, has been a very big issue, but there have been other issues as well. Well, there are other issues uh, for our Christian audience, uh, you know, and a concern to me uh, and the Oklahoma Conservative Political Action Committee, of which I'm president, uh, is the uh, LGBTQ agenda. Yeah. And when you drive into Norman, it says, Welcome to Norman, building um, not a national championship football team or anything else. It's building an inclusive community. Ugh. And I was on the phone once with um, um, a member of um, 
the uh, city, uh, not the city council, but the uh, business community um, group. And I asked what that sign meant. It was a Norman chamber, and uh, he didn't know. And I said, here's what I think it means. I think it means we hate Christians and we love homosexuals and lesbians. Mm -hmm. He said, well, I don't know, but I'll ask. So he called me back later that day, uh, and we concluded our other business. He said, by the way, uh, what I found out what that sign means. I said, really, what does it mean? He says, it's what you said. Oh, man. So that's an, a part. And, of course, these people don't play fair. Um, we just found out a couple of days ago that the the gentleman who led um, the uh, protest the night they voted to defund the police, he self-identified as a resident of Norman. We found out that he's, an, in fact, an actor from Oklahoma City, and he was the um, mayor's campaign manager. And so he is pretending to be a concerned citizen from Norman, leading other concerned citizens in, a, in an effort to um, uh, sway the council when now it appears that, uh, and he, he's on the mayor's payroll, by the way, it appears that this was an orchestrated event from the outside and the council only pretended to be swayed by this. Good grief. So, so we're looking into this and seeing if there's anything we can do about that. But it gives you a a picture of what the leftists will do. Well, right. Now, this other issue that I had mentioned, the defunding of the police, what was it, $865,000 was re-established for other purposes? And it, what was it, 865000 Here it is, $865,000 proposed in this police budget increase to instead support community welfare. So it was moved to community welfare. But isn't that one of the top goals of the defund police movement, Bob? It is. It's a communist goal. It's been their goal. They've worked on this for 40 years. Um, the, the John Birch Society has pointed this out uh, for a, a good 40 years, that uh, the Communist Party in America wants to eliminate local police. And that's why one of the first things Barack Obama did uh, when he came to office was make the announcement that he wanted to establish a national police force that was even better funded than our military. Some of your listeners will remember that. Yeah. That didn't catch a lot of enthusiasm, so he dropped it. But that is the purpose of any per person who wants to be a, a dictator, wants to eliminate local police and have a national police all under his personal control. Wow. So now when these council members and your mayor were elected, do you think that most of the people who elected these people knew how radical they actually were? They had no idea. I've talked to people who uh, actually, one gentleman who actually endorsed her, who was stunned. He had no idea that these this kind of stuff was in their minds. Uh, some of us knew that, but not. But there were a lot of people who just did not. The first day we announced uh, three weeks ago that we were filing, and we filed uh, the next. That was a Friday. On Saturday, there were five thousand Norman people who who signed the petition to remove the mayor from office. That's how much uh, energy there is to take her out of office. That is incredible. So you have all started this movement. What was it, mid-July, you started getting going on this petition drive? Is that right? Yes, it was actually July 10, Friday, July the 10th, that we filed. Uh, Saturday was our first day of petition ta taking, and actually by midweek of the next week, we had about 10,000 signatures. At this point, the signature taking is getting more difficult. 
we're having to pay to bring in uh, professional signature takers in certain wards because as we get, you know, we initially had, as I said, a 10,000 almost overnight signed. And uh, so now the, the rest of the signatures are coming slower. Yeah. And so uh, we have lots of volunteers who are knocking doors, taking petitions, but we've actually had to spend money, uh, quite a bit of money, actually, to bring in petitioners uh, to help us finish this out because we're bound and determined to make sure that we remove her from office. <clears throat> so we have, uh, as of today, about a week and a half left. Um, we she. August the 14th is our deadline date. Yes. Right. So you have some work to do. Now, I understand that you already have enough signatures to remove two of those council members, one of whom has just resigned. So that's kind of a moot point. But how far away are you from getting, what is it, about 18,000 signatures that you need to remove the mayor? Yes. Uh, the city laws are that we have to get 25% of the all registered voters. Uh, as you know, most of those don't vote. Right. especially in a mayor election. So that's been quite a challenge. But yes, we have to get 18,000 vetted signatures. Those are signatures that people go through and, and verify that these are legitimate names and addresses. So that's our target. And we're just a few thousand away. But I, I, I've told people as, as easy as those first 5,000 were to get, I think the, that's going to be as difficult as the last uh, 5,000. And, and we're not actually quite 5,000 away. We're closer than that. Right, right. So you still need a lot more signatures, but also for those other two council members. Well, the reason this is so important, Bob, as you have pointed out, is not just because of what's going on in terms of the, the, the communist radical agenda, but it's also because this isn't the only city this is happening in. And I know other cities have contacted you guys. We're going to get into that when we come back. Pause for a quick break here on Janet Meffer today. Back in a moment. Hi, this is Janet Mefford for Preborn. Candace talks about finding out she was pregnant. Thankfully, an ultrasound provided by Preborn allowed her to hear her baby's heartbeat. The sonogram sealed the deal for me. My baby was like this tiny little spectrum of hope. And I saw his heart beating on the screen. And knowing that there's life growing inside, I mean, that sonogram changed my life. I went from just Candace to mom. Thank you to everybody that has given these gifts. You guys are giving more than money. You guys are giving love. Preborn has 10 centers that do not have ultrasound machines. Would you make a leadership gift and sponsor a machine today? These life-saving machines cost more than most centers can afford. Your tax-deductible gift of $15,000 will place a machine in a needy women's center and save countless lives for years to come. To donate, call 855-402-BABY, 855-402-BABY, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Many people in developing nations have no access to desperately needed medical care. That's why Mercy Ships brings volunteers aboard our hospital ship, the Africa Mercy, to give the world's forgotten poor the free medical care they need. We have an immediate need for registered nurses, especially with a pediatric specialty. As a volunteer nurse, you won't just give life-altering health care, you'll receive so much in return. It's an amazingly rewarding experience. You'll give hope and make a difference in the lives of those who have virtually no access to medical aid. 
It's such a fantastic thing to do. Everybody who I've met on this ship either wants to come back and do it again or they're already here for the second, third, or tenth time. So what are you waiting for? Show mercy to someone today. I would say go for it. Get more information and learn how to apply by visiting mercyships.org forward slash nurses. That's mercyships.org forward slash nurses. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Well, we often want to know when we hear about what's going on across the country in terms of what the left is trying, who is opposing them and who is doing anything about this. We need people to rise up across America and push back against these radicals. Well, they are doing it in Norman, Oklahoma, of all places. A group called Unite Norman has filed to recall the progressive mayor, Bria Clark. Four city council members are also on the docket for removal, and they have signatures that they are collecting to try to get rid of these people. They still have some ground to cover. But Bob Lynn is with us talking about what's going on, president of the Oklahoma Conservative Political Action Committee. Bob, you were talking about your concerns in Norman with this mayor, with these council members, and how difficult it has been to kind of get over the finish line with some of these signatures. What has the reaction been in Norman to all of this? Because I've read quite a bit about the upheaval and people who are opposing this. But then you've you've had, what, about 30 percent of the people backing your efforts are actually Democrats. That's right. Uh, it is definitely bipartisan, but uh, this has really brought out the evil and the meanness and the hatred of the left. Uh, one of the uh, co-founders of this Unite Norman movement owns, uh, he's, he's constructing a property. It's the property where we have our meetings. It's still sort of an open air place. It has a concrete floor, you know, roofs, and um, and those kind of structures, so we can meet in there, but it's sort of outdoors. And last Saturday in our meeting, one of the um, people who hates what we're doing, one of the leftists in Norman, was driving his car around there uh, at a high speed. It was endangering the lives of people. And so the owner of that uh, project uh, came out to stop him, and um, the guy ran over the guy's feet. Oh. So that... That illustrates, and you know, as uh, we've, I've also been, I've not just recruited people, but I've personally been knocking doors, and it's given me some insight into the uh, the way the minds work of some of these leftists. Uh, we actually had a report last night of one of my teams that was out. Um, we had a pastor and um, a, a uh, flight attendant from uh, one of the airlines uh, were out knocking doors on one street. And the pastor, very nice guy, knocked a door, uh, went to the next door, and the lady whose door he just knocked came out with a, a can that appeared to be some kind of pesticide or bug spray mm. with the intent of spraying him. And she was yelling, you know, get off the street. Yeah, most conservative Christians don't engage in uh, conversation that way. But it is how some of the left has done. And and frankly, it, you know, it brings up the the techniques of this this all, you know, began, uh, you know, Ross Beer was one of the, is probably the founder of this kind of movement. And Lenin picked that up and picked up Marxism. But one of the things Lenin advocated was lie shamelessly and that the ends justify the means. Those were two of his the marquee points. And, of course, he was ruthless. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and he and 
many who came after him as a result of that millions have died. But that spirit of ruthlessness we've seen, and yes, getting over this final, the final few thousand, uh, we've now uh, canvassed quite a bit. We still have houses to knock, but uh, yeah, we, we need a lot of help to finish this and get over the, the finish line. Yeah. Now, where are you sending people? Because I know we have a lot of listeners in Oklahoma and in Norman, people who are interested in helping you out. Where can they find more information? Everything can be found at UniteNorman.com. And there you can find out how to, where to go to sign petitions. Uh, you, there's even one page at UniteNorman.com where they can go and ask a petition gatherer to come to their house. And I can assure you that uh, we will be there very quickly uh, to take those posi- uh, but petitions. But there are places all over Norman set up. Uh, where you can just drop by in public places. And uh, I know Sooner Dairy Lunch in Norman for uh, Norman or Oklahoma listeners, uh, uh, every day they have a booth out there. Uh, But there are a lot of businesses that have booths. So UniteNorman.com will tell you where to go, how to sign, and also gives you an opportunity. And I would urge your listeners, we need to to get over the finish line in certain uh, wards paid petition, professional petition gatherers uh, to get over this finish line. So, as I said, these last few thousand names are going to be as difficult as the first few thousand were easy. Well, it, it is quite an uphill battle, but I know a lot of people are getting excited about what you are doing. You know, something else I wanted to touch on, in reading a lot about what Unite Norman has been up to, one of the comments I read from one of your members has been related to the fact that they are really trying to bring a national agenda to Norman and really are skirting the issues that actually matter on the ground locally, one of which is this push to get 16-year-olds to vote. Now, this is the same garbage we're hearing from the West Coast. In California, we want 16-year-olds to vote, and, and the left is very big on this. Go younger, go younger, try to get more more voters. I mean, this is this really something that's a pressing concern across the board among the citizens of Norman? I, I would doubt it. No, absolutely not. But the left has its tentacles. You know, there's a little magazine called Teen Vogue, yep. which promotes LGBTQ and Black Lives Matter to little teenage girls. But it starts even earlier than that. Sesame Street is now running protests of Black Lives Matter followed by a discussion between Elmo and Louie, where Louie, who's Elmo's father, explains to him why we need to participate in these Black Lives Matter, you know, riots. And so children, those are targeted to three-year-old children. So, yes, of course they want 16-year-olds to vote because they've been teaching them this mush in government schools for years. That's right. And the indoctrination on the Internet is just absolutely pervasive. Yeah, I, it's it's crazy. And yet you have cities, I know you've said, that are contacting you guys at Unite Norman to inquire about how they can fight back. Talk a little bit about that, because I know whoever is listening probably has, uh, lots of people who are listening probably have similar situations, maybe not as over the top as what's going on in Norman, but say, I'm concerned about this stuff in my own city. Who have you heard from and what are some of the comments that you're getting as far as feedback? Well, specifically, we've been contacted uh, by uh, people as far away as Alaska and Washington State. 
Uh, it's amazing that we're getting the Northwest. Um, obviously, they have great needs to replace Democrat mayors there, but we, we've also had some from Texas. Yep. And these people are just watching what's going on in Norman. Uh, obviously, we've been highly successful. We're not across the finish line yet, but we've been highly successful, and we have a week and a half to finish this. But they are uh, contacting us and asking uh, if we could help them do this um, you know, in their in their cities. Well, I'm glad to hear that because you you don't just have one far left mayor in Norman, Oklahoma. You have quite a few across the country, as we know, and sometimes in spaces and cities where you wouldn't expect it. So if you are successful, Bob, if the petitioners end up getting the required number of signatures here, the election is to take place in January. With it, is that right? I think it'll be January. Uh, you've asked me a question I, I hate to be solid on, but I'm pretty sure you have that right. And um, yes, it'll, and, and there will be more campaigning at that point to uh, make this all official. Good. Well, that's good. And, you know, you, you hope that this sort of situation will awaken a sleeping giant. Do you see any signs of that, that many people who are just kind of complacent about local government are beginning to wake up and say, boy, we can't just be concerned about Congress and the White House anymore. We have to watch our local governments as well. Well, it has, it has with, um, I, you know, I, I, as I say, I've knocked doors and I've knocked doors on some, uh, some of the residences I've gone to are people who are obviously quite wealthy. Uh, I've had a couple of gentlemen say, hey, I, we were totally asleep. We didn't even pay attention, mm-hmm. but never again. Never again. But I've talked to our executive team and I said, hey, we have got to do more than just uh, statewide legislative races because Bernie Sanders and the socialists and the communists have targeted the cities very effectively to fight Donald Trump. And these cities, we, we have to take back. And as I say, many people are just asleep when it comes to city politics and don't understand how vitally important your mayor and your city council are. Yeah. And especially when you have a lot of city council members and mayors all across the country who are working in concert for the one objective, and that is to take down a president who wants to make America great again and fight against globalism. That's amazing. It's amazing that it's gotten to this point, but it's so good that you're fighting back. And I think it really is key, isn't it, to pay attention to getting out the vote every time there's a local election so this can't happen again. I mean, people have got to be engaged. We have to vote. We have to vote in primaries. We have to vote in runoffs and and the general. I've been stunned by how many Christians just don't vote. I had one guy whose door I knocked on. He came out and said, "I love Jesus, and uh, if everybody loved Jesus, we wouldn't. You wouldn't have to be doing this." Oh. And I said, "That's right. Christians have been sound asleep. They have uh, allowed the secular uh, mindset to take over." Yeah. Would you like to sign? He said, "No." Yep. <laughs> and. And he's, a, he's one of two people I, I met like that who just absolutely stunned me. That's wild. And that's a problem with the church and our pulpits, is our pulpits have gone silent on the cultural elements of the gospel. But when we begin reading our Bibles in Genesis 1, it's very clear God has a cultural mandate for mankind. Yeah. We, we were told to be his vice regents on this planet. That has never changed. What changed was Jesus shed his blood on the cross, redeemed us, 
and the authority that Adam left has now been restored to the entire church. All power and authority in heaven and earth is in Christ and is bestowed upon the church. And there is no reason why we can't have victory. Well, I love that. You're so right about that. Bob Lynn, you can check out UniteNorman.com. Bob, thank you for the work you're doing. God bless you. And I appreciate your being here. Thank you. You are welcome. Thanks for being with us. We'll be back. This Janet Meffer Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Bible League International. Please help us send 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians in Asia. $5 sends one Bible, $35 sends seven. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 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 or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now here's your host, Janet Mefford. Well, I find this kind of significant. Dr. Robert Redfield, who is the director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, has now said there's a possibility some people who had not even been diagnosed with coronavirus are included in the total death count. How does that work? This is some strange stuff going out on there uh, concerning the data on COVID-19. Here's something else. On July 30th, Florida reported 253 new COVID-19 deaths, which might make Floridians think that 253 people died the previous day of COVID-19. But in fact, astute trackers of the data reported that those deaths actually occurred over a period of time between June 25th and July 29th. It's over a month. This is what happens when the public is not getting actual date of death reporting from its health officials and the mainstream media doesn't take the necessary pains to report the data honestly and accurately. What is the real situation when it comes to COVID-19 deaths? We're going to talk it over with Dr. Andrew Bostom, trained clinician epidemiologist and clinical trialist and so good to have you with us Andy how are you today good Janet thanks for having me on again you bet well I know that you have been all over this issue of date of death reporting can you explain for people what this is and why you're so concerned about it yes um, so it, it it means what what you would think literally that that uh, and 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 it also raises the question of why on earth would this be done any other way? Um, but it but it means uh, matter of factly that uh, the, the day that an individual uh, dies is the is the day that's obviously recorded on the death certificate, but that's reported in these in these tallies, these morbid tallies of uh, COVID nineteen deaths, um, and it's done that way exclusively, um, and. The reason, um, you know, besides the, just the, the, the common sense logic to it, the, the reason that it becomes increasingly important is that when you when you are pl- when you're tracking uh, deaths from an outbreak like this, um, it's very important to do this methodically, meticulously, and accurately, um, so that so that the the number of deaths on if you're imagining a graph and that's the y-axis, the vertical axis, and the dates are the x-axis, the horizontal axis. You can you can plot those you know those uncomfortable morbid numbers in a way to simply describe to show whether the 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 outbreak and its mortality, which is the key factor in any outbreak, the key thing we should be monitoring, is increasing 
decreasing or staying the same. Yeah. I mean, it's that basic, Janet. And so the problem is that the State Departments of Health, um, particularly when an outbreak is, is um, you know, is blossoming, is upticking like it, like it had been in, in, in Florida and, and uh, Texas and in your state and, 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 in, and in Arizona, it's chaotic. And so what the Departments of Health will do is they're unable in each block of 24 hours to account um, accurately and timely for, for the deaths. So, so what they do is each, each time the report is due, say at noon each day, and that's how many of the states report, they, they will say they will come up with a, rep- a term called new deaths. And the public assumes that's the deaths in the tw- in 24 hours. And why shouldn't they if it's not explained? Right. Um, and usually it is explained, but in some detail, sometimes it's not a press report. It's uh, a website that people have to go to. But, but those, those, quote, new deaths can go back, given the adjudication process, uh, coroner's offices, et cetera, can literally go back, uh, even, even reclassification of what is or is not a COVID death, can go back days typically yeah. weeks, yeah. even months. And yet the report is seized upon by the press. The, the, and, and the example you gave, um, there, there, was, there was a report of over 250 deaths. I think there's been two such reports for Florida recently. Um, th- that, simply, that simply doesn't match the reality of 24 hours. I, I'm just looking at an update now. And the peak in Florida is staying the same. By the way, these 250 deaths were reported very recently, like the, like um, I believe you know, J- July 30th was one of them. Right. The peak, actual peak, by actual 24-hour period in which they occurred, the only standard that, that, that should be applied in any rational sense was on July 16th and July 17th. July 16th, unfortunately, there were 152 deaths, and... July uh, 17th, there were 151 deaths. We have numbers later uh, when the, and, and by the way, on the basis, since that's the peak, deaths mercifully have been coming down slowly since then, um, uh, since, since July 16th, 17th. Again, that's the peak. That's the actual peak. Right. That's as recently as, um, as I'm looking at, uh, at, um, uh, 252 deaths on July 30th because of one of these dumps, one of these reports that includes many, many days. 257 on on the uh, on on the 31st, and I, I believe uh, yes, 247 on August 4th, and and 225 on on uh, uh, yesterday on August 5th, hmm. and and so what you're getting by these date of report dumps of multiple days of data without clarification, certainly from the press, and often, I would say, frankly, inadequate clarification from the individual departments of health, you are getting these ghoulish, uh, you know, almost, it's sick, it's, they're kind of gleeful. You know, for, the, for those that would like to see this epidemic go on forever, apparently, hmm. um, and, and, there, and there's one site that's particularly guilty of doing this, it's the Atlantic Magazine's COVID tracking project, which unfortunately has taken over and, and, and is a feeder to, to the press, particularly the, the mainstream media, of these types of ghoulish, exaggerated reports from Florida. People literally believe that, that there were 257 deaths one day in Florida, yeah. when, 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 when the number is over 100 less for the two maximum days. 
Yeah. Well, and it creates an they, impression. They also, sorry, they also believe yeah. the shape of the curve is still going up, basically, as opposed uh, to having reached that peak um, over two weeks ago now. Yeah. Well, and I even saw a number today that Florida hospitalizations are significantly down. They're at yes. se- 7615, yes. uh, and now they're down from eight, almost 9,000 on July 28th. So that's going down, not just the numbers of deaths, but also the numbers of hospitalizations. I, I think some people might be a little bit skeptical that perhaps there's a political motivation here that we want to, you know, skewer the governor of Florida and get him a little bit. Oh, see, see, Florida's in terrible shape. Oh, Texas is in terrible shape. I mean, they have a political aim here. Well, that's, I mean, the Atlantic Magazine is the Atlantic Magazine. I, yeah. I mean, you can, you can go to the Atlantic Magazine and, and see where they are. They're, they're, they're transparent about who they are. Yeah. They've become, uh, you know, quite hard left. They're virulently anti-Trump. You know, they're virulently uh, anti-Trump supporters. And I certainly would classify Governor DeSantis, uh, uh, as as someone who's been a strong supporter of Trump, but regardless, DeSantis's job is to manage as best he can uh, a big state uh, with a large elderly population, um, and the numbers would tell us, certainly compared to New York and New Jersey, that he's done admirably well. The other thing we're dealing with is some seasonality to corona and flu viruses, and and I and I lump them together. They behave, you know, diff- differently in certain ways, but 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 similarly in many ways, and. There is this tendency historically um, for these for these viruses to have a different, a slightly different seasonality. That that they that they tend to have a more gradual uh, peak, but it occurs later uh, in in the southern climates. And so what you're seeing is is actually quite consistent with with that behavior. That that the bigger peak is now happening in in Florida and Texas and 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 Arizona um, at, at at the at the lower latitudes. Um, and I don't honestly don't think it has very much uh, to do with with opening, reopening, you know, any, any of those things. This yeah. is the natural cycle, as, as I understand it, uh, of, of these viruses. But regardless, um, the mitigation efforts in these states have been far superior to this to this, uh, you know, really much larger, much more gruesome death toll that that occurred in New York yeah. and, and, and New Jersey. Yeah. Um, and and, and, and the, the real point, though, is that um, and, I, and I've seen some data that look quite similar in your state, in Texas, that, that the, the apex has been reached. And in Florida, at least in terms of death, which is the only really important metric here. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's hang on, Andy, I got to I got to go to a break. We're going to come right back. Stay with us. Sure. If you could provide God's word to a Bible-less believer in Asia, would you? Hi, it's Janet Mefford. Hebrews 13.3 urges us to remember those in great need, noting that when the body of Christ is found lacking, we're urged to help meet their need. These Christians live where churches are small and remote, where authorities aren't welcoming of the gospel, and where Bibles are scarce. They need the hope found only in God's word, and your gift today lets them know they're remembered. For only $5, believers like Hyo in China and Miriam in Nepal will receive a Bible, be discipled in their new faith, and trained to share Christ. $35 sends seven Bibles, $100 sends 20. Listeners, we're grateful you've generously sent Bibles to more than 2,000 Christians in Asia. Please help us send more with Bible League International. Call now, 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. 
800-YES-WORD, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Thank you. Are you in need of a healthcare program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org JMT. Or call now, 855-565-2561, 855 855- Five six five twenty five sixty one. You're listening to Janet Mefford today, and now here's Janet. I have really appreciated all of the work that Dr. Andrew Boston has been doing. He is a trained clinician, epidemiologist, and clinical trialist, and he has really been tracking the data very, very carefully throughout the course of this pandemic of COVID-19. One of his concerns is something we're talking about right now, and that is the tendency that you're seeing in the media to hype, especially the numbers in the Sun Belt, uh, Florida and Texas in particular. Oh, look at all the hospitalizations. Look at all the deaths. But then when you realize that these state departments of health are not necessarily giving you the death counts from the previous 24 hours, but actually a compilation of deaths over sometimes a month, then you begin to get a different impression of what's really going on. And Andy, you were pointing out that this issue of hospitalizations, not, you know, it's a different thing than the number of deaths and the actual number of deaths per date, but also is significant because now aren't they turning in the media more their attention to the Midwest now? Okay, now we can't go crazy over the Sun Belt. Let's go after the Midwest for a while. That'll keep us right, busy. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and I mean, on the one hand, let's see, well, some of it may be legitimate. Um, you know, the, these, these, uh, these flare ups, you know, can, can, can shift. Um, however, to me, it's so important that uh, particularly when it comes to uh, absolutely when it comes to deaths, um, even if there's a delay in reporting, I think that error, as it turns out, is 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 less important. It's an error, and and, and I wouldn't say really an error. It's it's a flaw, and we have to you know be beware of it. But the idea that you would you would call a 24-hour period that's really a composite of days to weeks to even months one period and say new deaths and and the public assumes they occurred in the last 24 hours. This is very destructive, um, and it also. It also it's it's destructive in terms of the one day that makes people hysterical, but it also it also distorts completely the actual death curve, which is a morbid thing and a depressing thing. But we have to we have to watch it. To st- we literally do not know whether things are getting better or worse or staying the same if we don't plot things this way and yeah. look at them this way. Great point. And, 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 the, and the CDC uh, does, does it the right way and should be the gold standard. They're too darn slow. They really, you know, they're still behind, but they do it the right way. And they're, you know, we could argue about what they're calling a COVID death, which is a whole other story, <laughs> but at least they're putting them into the, into the right chronological order. And that is so critical because, frankly, 
frankly, done any other way, it is literally meaningless. Yeah. It, is, it is meaningless to plot things that way. You, you, they, 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 they are not tethered to any date or, or, or they're, they're not tethered to any real quantity. What, they mean nothing. Yeah. Well, let me ask you a question, because Dr. Robert Redfield, you know, had been at that House hearing last week and was asked about the COVID-19 deaths. And he said there is a possibility that the reporting that we're getting from the state and local and tribal territory health departments and our Center for National Health Statistics uh, is not, you know, including in the death count, I should say it this way, that some individuals who aren't diagnosed with COVID-19 are included in the death count. He says basically he thinks that the data is accurate, but there is a possibility that there are people who don't have COVID who are in the death count. Well, how do you mitigate against that? No, well, and it it it, it actually is. It's it's he's 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 really soft peddling. It, it's much worse than that. There there are uh, and and um, first of all, it's in you can see for yourself in the CDC database. But I'd also like to give a shout out to a fantastic reporter, uh, old you know young person, but an old fashioned reporter, uh, Jennifer Cabrera in, in of the Alachua Chronicle in in uh, in Florida. She's the one that's been tallying the deaths, but she's also been requesting you know again it's a it's a, it's an issue in terms in terms of, of of HIPAA, but getting de-identified data from the from the coroner's department, and she's been sending to me, and i give you two examples, um, the two trauma patients, one old, one young. The young one is more striking because it's literally, striking is the right word, he was struck by lightning as a roofer, oh. fell off the roof, suffered massive, massive trauma to his spinal cord, his brain, etc., tragically died, tested positive somewhere along the line. That's a COVID death. Um, similarly, <laughs> a frail, very frail um, multiple comorbidities. Elderly woman uh, fell, had had a had a brain injury as a result of that. A bleed uh, ultimately expired. She somewhere along the lines tested positive for COVID. These are true two trauma patients. Mm. Uh, there are there are at least four thousand of those patients in the CDC um, registry where you can actually look and and you see what the, the quote unquote code diagnosis is. It's trauma. Well, excuse me. There's no way that COVID causes trauma, but but certainly a trauma pl- patient can test positive somewhere along the line uh, and, and and expire basically from their trauma, but be called a COVID death. Apparently, that's crazy. And, and there's four thousand of those in the CDC. Four thousand. You know what else drives me nuts? This is getting more and more annoying to me as every day passes, and it's this: the media, as you know, one of my issues has been the way that the media is constantly blaming the spread of COVID nineteen, particularly on church. They never mention, you know, mosques. They don't talk about leftist protests, any of that. But what they're doing now is they'll say a a recent story said, oh, well, there was this church and there were 91 coronavirus cases. And then it says the state didn't reveal this, you know, the status of any of these cases, meaning we don't know if these people were asymptomatic. We don't know if they had, you know, mild symptoms. We don't know anything. We don't know know if they got it before, during or after. Exactly. Uh, Exactly. well, there's a, there was a classic about that in another realm, camps, another controversy. Yes. Some, summer camps. Well, morbidity mortality weekly reports from the CDC itself. Uh, another hysterical thing uh, that thank, thankfully wasn't blown up too much on the news, but basically that, that you know, a, a sleepaway camp in Georgia, and, and I believe it was like 40% tested positive. And you read the report, it's only a one page report. They couldn't determine. They say in the report, well, you know, there was a lot of there was a lot of um, COVID positivity at this period of time, um, and they basically couldn't determine whether it, the 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 cases 
were generated before, during, or after the summer camp. Yeah. On top of that, some of the quote-unquote temperature data, you know, fever data, was, was a lot of it actually was not based on, on taking temperatures. And I'm thinking to myself, well, it's Georgia. It's the summer. <laughs> the kids may be playing soccer. Maybe they complained of being hot. Yeah, you know, right. I, I mean, this, this is how ridiculous it gets, but, but it's right. all ginned up to keep the hysteria going. Well, um, right. and, 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 that's, and that's why something as simple as tracking this, you know, grisly, uncomfortable uh, uh, quality of, of, of is, are the deaths increasing, decreasing, or going down? This, this ha- we have to insist that, that, that reports be based on date of death. Yes. And you should always question them when you're just hearing new deaths. You know, new deaths, new deaths are new in the sense that they're newly reported, or are they new in the sense that they actually occurred in the last 24 hours? Great point. Well, here's another point. When we're talking about testing, I've begun to think, and you would have a different opinion because you are a medical doctor, you understand these things better than I do, but why are we going nuts on testing people who don't have any symptoms. That I don't understand. Right. I can un- It wasn't that how we started out. If you have symptoms, you'll get a test. Right. But if you're asymptomatic, right. you're not sick, you feel fine, what does it matter if you're walking around? I know the argument is, well, you could inadvertently Be spread trans, it to somebody. Trans. Yeah, I get yeah, that. Yeah. But yeah, on the yeah, other no, hand, but, but, but the downside actually, is worse. Mm-hmm. Well, you're right. The downside is, but the transmission actually is now, you know, is now been reevaluated in multiple studies, and and clearly, you know, it it looks as if the the uh, asymptomatic people are are far less likely to transmit the disease. Oh wow! Um, and and that becomes important too. Um, there's some arguments, you know, do, do they not transmit at all? Do they do they transmit less? But but clearly. Uh, the evidence is now is now quite suggestive that that they're they're not they're not transmitting at the same level of an obvious symptomatically sick you know coughing fever febrile person uh, or a person spreading it you know there could be you know hate to say the term but it's a basic term like diarrhea spreads it's called fecal oral transmission you know you can imagine how that spreads uh, there are all kinds of diarrheal illnesses that spread that way there may be some of that transmission with COVID too but again. That, that, that's that's a, that those are sort of obvious you know vectors of transmission. The whole issue of asymptomatic has been blown, uh, I think, out of proportion in terms of transmission. Um, and then you're right. I mean, so that's who you're picking up. And we, we're also running into tremendous problems with false positives. Some some may have to do with with individual test kit characteristics. Some may be larger problems in that. The, you know, when you're simply amplifying a, a segment of the virus's um, genetic material, the RNA, um, that could be in, in, uh, in vivo in someone's body for, for a much longer time than live virus. Uh, and, and so that it, 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 there may be fragments that are, you know, around for some months after the person has actually, you know, fully resolved their, 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 their acute uh, infection. And, and, and so there's all kinds of questions about, you know, what is the utility of this of this mass testing? Yeah, um, and exactly. should we go back to confining it to symptomatically ill people and, and testing and isolating them? Yeah, that's good. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Andrew Boston. Really appreciate the work that you've been doing. You can check him out on Twitter and get more information. But thank you so much, Andy, for being with us and God bless. Thank you, Janet. Thank you. All right. Take care. Thanks for joining us on Janet Mefford today. We'll see you next time. God bless you.